Hey there, and welcome back to War Starts at Midnight, a podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by the rest of the gang, including Jerry. Hello. And his associate, Cornelius. That's me. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, we've got a zippy review of Wes Anderson's debut feature film, Bottle Rocket. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with the film. And of course, we will wrap up this show, as you always do, with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey guys. Hey Chris. Hey Chris. We are on to episode two of the Magnificent Andersons and finally diving into Wes Anderson. The actual Magnificent Anderson. Oh, so <laughs> <sighs> this movie may test that a little bit. We we will, you know, Jake, I think um we're gonna bring you around. But I did actually want to talk at the top of the show sort of about where we all stand with Wes. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, and I think he's absolutely fantastic. What I didn't realize is I was a big enough Wes Anderson fan to make you, Chris, who I think of as being the biggest Wes Anderson fan, be like, we'll get you to come around on P.T. Anderson. Like, like it, it, it almost feels like I went too far in the in the West direction that that now you're maybe not as big of a Wes Anderson fan as I had you. Uh... No, not it's not that at all. It's I, I actually think your spirit of belittling PTA's work um, <laughs> is so far away from the like think about Anthony and Dignan they wouldn't be they wouldn't be putting down PT Anderson's work they would be they'd be happy that he's doing stuff man yeah but I I I understand what you're saying but but I just don't feel like any of PT Anderson's work has that spirit of Dignan it, it, it doesn't have that like i I, I will I will save that. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. That's that's the answer to your question. Okay. I've gathered that. <laughs> what about you, Peterson? Where do you stand with uh with Wes? Yeah, so I I do love Wes Anderson in a lot of ways, but it is film to film for me. Hmm. Okay. My favorite of his films, uh, which we'll get to later, um, I absolutely love. It's one of my favorites of uh this century. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. But then he's got Movies that every once in a while just for some reason or another, I think the whimsy is too much or it lacks the kind of structure of his others. And to me, I love him, but it can be a give and take relationship. I think I've got a couple films that I return to quite a bit, but I don't know. He's, he's a, he's a complicated egg for me sometimes to crack because I know all the skill and all the yeah. precision is there, but it's also something for the films that don't work for me, something's missing in the translation. He seems to be the type of director that a lot of times you will get a very strong reaction one way or another when you bring him up. And and I feel like maybe it's it's tapered off a little bit with his past few films. I would say like since really since Moonrise Kingdom, it's surprised me as to like how he's he's kind of leaked into common culture a little bit more you know around the time of like the life aquatic and darjeeling limited like there was a real pushback to him to the point that it was like oh man that guy i just don't get him 
Um, and I, I totally like, I totally understand that he's on a weird level and it's like that sort of, you get his wavelength or you don't. And, uh, I'm very interested to, as we go on Peterson to kind of get into what it is that, uh, that works for you and what it is that doesn't, I think that'll be, that could be a fun exploration and maybe we'll have to pull you in the other direction too. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to this very hopeful that I get on board with some of the films that I'm not as big of a fan of. You know, for me, so I'll say, I saw my first Wes Anderson film with Rushmore in theaters. My stepmom wow. took uh, my stepmom took me. Um, she knew I was very big in a film. Uh, she was pretty savvy on basically staying up with her views and what was kind of the big film. So she took me. Um, and you know, I think I was, I was like, what exactly is this? Yeah. I was just young enough that I probably didn't quite get what he was going for. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it definitely left an impression on me. And since then I've always been anticipating his films and, you know, probably about that same time, the life aquatic, Darjeeling limited, those movies didn't quite work as much for me. You shut your mouth. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't seen the Darjeeling Limited since theaters in 2007. You're gonna. Um, I've, oh, I'm, and look, I'm excited to go back to it, but I do, like, I feel like I remember that movie incredibly well, even though I've only seen it once. Um, but with something like Life Aquatic, I've gone back to it, I think, twice since. And for some reason or another, I don't quite understand why. Uh, it just doesn't quite hit me the way some of his others do. I- I'm upset about that too. We're, we're going to have a fun, we're going to have a fun time talking about those. <laughs> this is going to be great. This could be I'm going to get in a good old, good old tussle on some of these. I think, I, I think he is a little like, this is a, again, like one of the reasons I wanted to, to pair these two guys together. Like while they are so different, both of them are directors that I find I get the most out of, my revisits to them. Like I, and I think I've even gone on record saying this on the show before, like life aquatic is a movie that I really didn't care for when I saw it in the theater. And it's only been upon repeat viewing that I kind of finally cracked that nut and figured out like you, you were 15. You can't be expected to get that movie. Like revisiting it. Now you have, you have, (sighs) sorry. Well, no, life aquatic was, Love Aquatic was, I think I was a senior in high school. Yeah, that was, it was later. I believe that it was the same year as I Heard Huckbees, right? Yeah, that's a bizarre whimsy bomb. I never got Life Aquatic that first time. It's been tough going back each revisit with that movie. But something like Bottle Rocket's the exact moment where he kind of explodes onto the scene a little bit. Obviously, there's a lot of hype with the film. So to me, I think it works – Better than obviously a lot of his later work. Obviously, let's what? let's what? hold that what? thought, oh. and yeah. and then we'll uh, we'll just get into it. We we are about to discuss uh, one of Martin Scorsese's top ten films of the nineties, guys. <sighs> really? Yeah. Next order of business, Mr. Henry. I know you're probably wondering when am I going to introduce you to Mr. Henry after all I've told you about him. Well, and answer that question very soon. In fact, judging from how well that here you go, you got to do that up it. There you go. And judging from how well that job went today, which was pretty good, man, including the coin collection and the earrings, was to say the least. You took the earrings, Digman. You took them. No, it's my fault. It's like uh, ultimately, Anthony, when you're going to learn. 
Man, you got another ball. Should I play your game? The list, Dignan, I know you remember the list because you signed it. You signed it things Dignan's not supposed to touch. The thing is, I can't be sorting through all that shit in the middle of a burglary. Hey, just kid, I don't care, okay? I bought the earrings for my mother on her birthday. I went down, I picked them out my... Okay, one thing is, every value item in the house was on that list. Hey, maybe we should have robbed your house. You ever think of that? No, I bet that never crossed your mind. What? What? Come on, dignit. You know there's nothing to steal from my mom and Craig. So the 90s were filled with crime thrillers that echoed the type of offbeat charm that Tarantino perfected and everyone sort of tried to replicate. And uh, QT cast such a large shadow over the following years that the Rotten Tomatoes consensus of Wes Anderson's debut film, Bottle Rocket, calls the film part Reservoir Dogs, and get this, the other film they compare it to is Breathless. So Wes is in some pretty strong company, particularly for a debut. But we're 20 years out from the moment this film first hit theaters, and hindsight can be a pretty handy tool sometimes. So with that in mind, guys, I'm curious. Do you think these comparisons are empty gestures? If so, is that a good thing? And perhaps more importantly, does Wes have something to say with this initial film? Yeah, I don't I don't really see any reservoir dogs in it. I think that was just like a tower that that was casting a shadow over everything after it. I think that anything that was a crime, kind of like a, a, a not quite a heist, but any kind of crime group movie, it was going to be compared to reservoir dogs. I don't get that vibe from that. Do you guys? I don't get that stylistic vibe at all. I mean, knowing as much as I do about the uh, very long history of the making of this film, like that was very, very, very early on, like before the feature even became a feature uh, when they were just kind of starting out writing. That was the intent was to make something that was sort of this gritty heist thriller thing. And then they realized that they weren't very good at writing that type of thing. And it just sort of became a lot of prototypes for what Wes would go on to sort of mine for, you know, the next few decades in his career. And I mean, I think there's this doesn't feel to me like a fully formed Wes Anderson by any means, but there's enough little seeds here that are germinating um, ideas that he definitely fleshes out later on. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really feel the reservoir dogs thing either, but I also know that like, it probably is a valid connection to make just knowing what the zeitgeist was at the time and what their original intent was. So much like heartache came from cigarettes and coffee. I know bottle rocket came from a short as well. Yeah. Um, is that short basically like the first 15 minutes of this movie or something? Is it kind of the same thing? More or less. I mean, the short was basically a proof of concept. The entire in- intent with the short was they would make the short and come with the feature in hand mm-hmm. to say, look, we made this thing. Now we want to make it into a big feature. The irony being that the the short caught the eye of some producers and they thought, oh, maybe this kid has some talent. And then it took them like a year and a half to rewrite the really? feature script and get it to to a working um you know something that, that was really 
working well that could be filmed. Was he in film school? Was he UT Austin or something like that? This is this is after after film school. Actually, okay. I guess I should say I don't even know if he technically went to film school. I know he wrote some plays, and so did uh, so did Owen. But we should probably put a pin in that and do a little research on. We can we can come back to that later, I suppose. One of the things that's a little bit frustrating about this one for me is that it is the germ of an idea. And you can kind of feel throughout the movie that they're trying to figure out exactly how to dispel that idea into a feature-length film. Mm-hmm. And you can tell they're rewriting this thing. You can tell they're doing reshoots. It does feel a little bit unformed, not in a bad way, but in a first feature kind of way. And there's a lot of things – we talk about this a little bit with PTA, but with Hard Aid as well, it's very film schooly. There's a lot of things that you can see – exactly kind of what they thought they were going to try and do what they did. And now I do think in a lot of ways, this is a really strong debut, but there are some things that frustrate me a little bit just by the kind of formlessness of it a little bit. It takes you a good hour to figure out what this thing's even trying to do. Um, And I think part of that is because they didn't really understand what they were trying to do. They, they, were writing and they're rewriting, they're shooting, and then they were doing reshoots. And by the time they finally got to it, you can tell they'd had so much of a push and pull trying to figure out what to do with this thing that it does feel a little bit shapeless and formless. And not always in a bad way, in a lot of ways in a very Wes Anderson way. I agree with you, but I don't see any of that really as a detriment to it i guess i mean and i i will say the first time that i saw bottle rocket i had already seen royal tenenbaums and rushmore and i was a little disappointed by it initially um because i had a friend who was a real big fan and he had sold it to me as like oh there's they're doing this heist and all of this and like ultimately it's not a movie that's at all about plot um the the thing that the plot does is it gives Dignan uh, a kind of sandbox to play in as this child who's sort of playing make-believe and dress-up. But really what the strength is, and I think this is Anderson's strength throughout, is the characters and the way these characters interact. Ultimately, it's sort of, I would watch them do just about anything. And so the fact that they end up these characters who are in no way qualified to be pulling off a heist, um, let alone multiple heists end up in this place where they think they're going to become career criminals is totally preposterous and ridiculous. And so I think the fact that they are so bad at what they do and not in a like slapped slapstick comical way, but more in just a like, okay, what's the, What's the lowest way we can get by? Like when, for instance, when Bob steals his car mm-hmm. and they have to <laughs> he go. He stole his car. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to dig and says, oh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to go hotwire a car. What does he do? He tries, he tries very poorly to like get into, take a coat hanger and get into a Cadillac and he can't figure it out. So what does he do? Oh, there's a beat up convertible, like in a back alley that barely looks like it can run. I'll steal that because I can just jump in it. Like it's, 
the it, especially Dignan, but everyone in his orbit who's been sucked into his gravitational pull, like they're all playing pretend. And so that's, I think that's why the, now that I've become, and as I was saying sort of earlier, like this, this definitely falls in the films from Anderson that it's taken me multiple viewings to really like sink into. But uh, now that I kind of realize that all of that plot, like, doesn't really matter it doesn't bother me so much anymore and it's you know it's the interactions between them it's the i love i absolutely love the just little small jokes of dialogue peppered throughout this thing it is a infinitely quotable film um and while it's not like there's nothing that is like just you know knock you over blue in the face laughter I think they are jokes that sustain rewatchability. I think that heist is pretty, pretty comical. I think the whole thing is very funny. That's the moment that makes me laugh out loud the most. Now, a lot of the dialogue leading up until then is very funny. It's very quotable. But that sustained, I guess, probably 15, 20 minutes of the heist is so funny because it's people – that have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. They're so bad at this criminal lifestyle that they don't understand that the fire alarm is going off because they <laughs> set off <laughs> through a smoke, smoke bomb. Yeah. They had smoke bombs. Now they set up fire alarms. Um that uh 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 Kumar Palani keeps falling asleep. <laughs> he is like he's I don't know, man. Con- I lost my touch. <laughs> He has no idea what's going on. Like that, that to me is the, like that heist is so electric. And that's the moment to me that you really feel like, okay, this is the Wes Anderson that would go on to make something like the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like that to me is the moment that really solidifies this guy's a talent to watch. Not that there's not glimpses of it before, but it is to me the moment early in the movie that echoes some of the skill he's going to have later is when they're in the car, it's shooting so that Luke Wilson's on the passenger side and it's shooting him just like that. And it has that Russian nesting doll editing effect where mm-hmm. as they're driving, it there, has a hard cut. There's so much, it, there's so much economy to the way that, mm-hmm. that it's plays out. So it's so well done because it immediately cuts. Luke Wilson is standing and now you're exactly 15 feet away from where you initially were outside of the car. Mm-hmm. And it's that nesting doll effect that Wes Anderson loves to do so much. And that's where you're like, okay, this guy understands the idea of what it means to put a camera somewhere, what it means to cut when you do, and then how to function outside of just storytelling, what these things mean from a plot and mechanic level as well his grammar is there from the beginning and that's that's really interesting i mean another thing just before that uh he's we've got anthony talking with gracie his little sister and that sets up a trope that really runs throughout uh all of anderson's films but particularly particularly the early ones um up through like maybe zisu uh and that's you have adults who act like children and then children who act like adults. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's basically the, all of, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums 
and you've got Gracie who is this little, I mean, what is she? Maybe a fifth or sixth grader. And she is the voice of reason. The one lone voice of reason in this movie. You told your friend Bernice I'm some kind of jet pilot? What was I supposed to say? They stuck you in an insane asylum? It wasn't an insane asylum, Grace. I explained to you back then that it was for exhaustion. Exhaustion? Yes, exhaustion. You haven't worked a day in your life. How could you be exhausted? Okay, sit down, okay? I didn't come up here today to argue with you, okay? I've got some friends waiting for me, and I've got some Who? things that I need to... Some associates. That's... Dignan? Yeah, Dignan, and also some... What's wrong with Dignan, Grace? I thought you liked Dignan. I do like Dignan. Then why do you sigh when I mention his name? But now? he's a liar. Bob Maplethorpe, potential getaway driver, go. To me, I look at this and I see, you know, 15 little Petri dishes of ideas across the various scenes, across characters, across how everything's built out. And then each one of those would kind of grow over time, either into their own movie or in the little uh, tools in his tool belt that he would then iterate up upon and use uh, to, to better effect later in his career. I, I think it's really, really interesting to see that every time I watch this movie, which this was the second or third time I, I kind of forget because it's so long in between watching it, uh, what I like by the end of the movie. So I watch it at the beginning again. I go, what, what was I thinking? I don't buy these guys as criminals. Like it's not, yeah. I, I don't. And then as the movie goes on, I go, Oh, they're not criminals. They're, they're not out to be criminals. They think this would be fun or cool or interesting or, or whatever reasons they have for doing it. But it's just, they're, they're playing, playing crime. Well, it's really like Dignan has come over and said, Hey, can Anthony and Bob come out and play? Mm-hmm. This is what he can control. He understands how to control people, and he wants to be a leader. Yeah, but maybe he doesn't understand how to control them. But he wants to control them. He wants to play director. He wants to play the guy who is in the sandbox, and he's putting his toy soldiers out, and he's saying, "Okay, you know, we're going to put this guy here, this guy here." He's going to structure the whole thing and try to have some semblance of a. Uh, sorry, some semblance of a directive or a narrative. He wants to impose that upon everyone, but he's so bad at it. He has no idea what he's doing. And I think that's one thing that Owen Wilson captures really well is that this guy's kind of an idiot. Yeah. By kind of an idiot, I mean really an idiot. Um, and to me, Anthony's Anthony, the Luke Wilson character, is not a complete uh, – he's not a complete – misfit or a complete idiot. No. I think he's pretty world weird. Like he understands the world pretty well. And I've always had a tough time buying though. Why he's so depressed is they only really allude to, because I don't really get it in Luke Wilson's performance and why he's so upset or why he feels like he needed to go to the nut house as they call it. Um, that to me has always been a Point of the film that I don't quite understand exactly. Did, what did I miss? Did, did he with. did he have his heart broken or something? Doesn't he talk about somebody, uh, a, a girl or something like that? Well, it, it wasn't. No, it wasn't he, a matter of his heart being broken. It was a matter of just a. I mean, I read it as a melancholy like demeanor. It's not. It's not particularly that anything happened. It's just that's sort of just he the didn't way. Want to play water sports anymore. 
if he, yeah, he, he didn't, not only did I not want to answer another question about laying out or playing water sports, I didn't, it like, it's, it's, I think more that he just has this profound sadness that he can't even identify. It just hangs over him. Uh, and the only way for him to get over it is to keep himself busy. And, and so that's why, like, when he comes back, it's like, okay, well, Dignan gives him something to do. And he, he knows the entire time that, you know, what Dignan wants to do is ridiculous, but he thinks he's helping Dignan out. And it's only, you know, the only reason they split is because it gets to a point where he pisses off Dignan and then Dignan comes and hits him with a, with a screwdriver. And then it's like, Anthony can no longer be his guardian anymore and then goes off and sort of does his own. So I, I don't know. I buy, I buy the melancholy. I, I also, I see him as he's definitely not on the same level of like being incompetent. I I think he's more almost like a caregiver for Dignan in a way. I do think Bob though is particularly in the, the first half, he really is getting into the, uh, the the whole life of crime thing and he's sort of buying into what Dignan's selling because he's you know he gets really pissed off when he thinks that after the first heist that Dignan's going to cut him out like he's legitimately upset yeah he thinks he's in goodfellas he thinks he's yeah. like he's he the getaway driver he's the next career criminal yeah yeah what is it uh bob maplethorpe getaway driver go yeah i guess i see a little bit of the melancholy to me uh dignan's the one that should have been <laughs> in the mental hospital cuz he has no bearings of reality and has no idea the world he exists in where I think Luke Wilson's character, uh, Anthony has a pretty good grasp of the world around him. And maybe that's why he is so sad is because you know what? The world's kind of a shitty, horrible place sometimes. And it's hard to exist in. But for me, Anthony, it seems like he had a pretty cush life. He's playing water sports. And no, he does. And- like it's not. And that's the thing is I don't think there's any sort of, explanation that it's i mean and a lot of the these first three films in particular really like and i think they kind of go up and up so this one a little bit rushmore a little more and then royal tenenbaums totally borrow from this whole glass family um jd salinger sort of uh melancholy feel anthony is very much like you can see Anthony turning into Richie. Yes. Richie's just a more well-formed, thought out, really well-written character where I think Anthony's sure. missing some stuff on the page. Sure. But Anthony's Anthony's point is not to be as introspective as Richie. Anthony's – what Anthony is here to do is he is here to, uh, you know, be a friend to Dignan because if Anthony's not there, like Dignan – he has no one else to hang out with other than the weirdo criminals with uh, with the gang at the Lawn Wranglers. I love how genuine all of the characters are here. I love how they they are really uh, they're none of them are fake. None of them are, are are doing anything other than exactly what they want to be doing. But what I like about Luke Wilson's character is it doesn't seem like he's using Dignan 
to be slumming because it, it does imply that he comes from a bit of privilege that he's you know uh, a couple hundred dollars isn't broke uh, is is what Dignan tells him at one point so it mm-hmm. seems like Anthony definitely comes from a a, a, a a place of privilege but he's not using Dignan he's not like using him to be slumming he genuinely cares for Dignan and and you see that over the course of the film like he he just kind of follows him and goes along with him I I do think he thinks he's helping him but no one here has like bad intentions nobody's backstabbing each other they all like just genuinely want to be doing this thing that they're doing it it's really a cool thing to to see it's it's a cool point of view on that that crime crime heist sort of movie i think that's one of the things that scorsese was so struck by with this i mean in the um we decided it's what an esquire article that he wrote in like 2000 he talks about how it was just so devoid of cynicism and that's really, I mean, there is for everything that kind of goes wrong with these guys, they're all like true blue, happy go lucky. Like there's nothing that is cynical about uh, life or living or even, even with Anthony, who is a depressive character, he's not in this weird way of like, Oh, I want to kill myself. I want to like, which we do get with, which with Richie, but that's more, I think because he's more a manic character. These guys are just, they're just getting by and you're right. I mean, there is definitely a, this kind of socioeconomic undertone that they put between, you know, Anthony and Bob and Dignan. I mean, there, I, I love the, the just little throwaway line after, Anthony gets mad about stealing the earrings and Dignan's like, you know, there's nothing to steal from my mom and Craig, which says (laughs) so much about the difference between. And then we go and see Bob's house, which is this uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house. And like, there's so much that's spelled out in that moment about exactly who Dignan is and where he comes from uh, that, that, that is really, telling without being like too on the nose or getting into too much overblown exposition or anything. A lot of that sensibility comes through really well. And I just think it really shows that Wes Anderson is so much more comfortable writing the Anthony character who is more privileged or the Bob who is more privileged than the Dignan. And that's, you know, ever since uh, this film, he's, kind of progressively gotten to characters that are more well off. Which is a criticism he gets a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That is a criticism, but it's different for me because I think he writes him really well. Mm -hmm. And just because you have money doesn't mean you have an easier life or a, you may be more financially stable, but that doesn't mean your emotions are any less uh, valid. Doesn't mean you don't see the world and, Kind of all the kind of crap going on around you now. Someone like the you know Richie or Margot uh, and the Royal Tenenbaums. I think those characters are so fully drawn because he understands them. I think he has a little bit more struggle with somebody like a Dignan. Not that Owen Wilson doesn't bring a lot to the character because I think he's really good as Dignan, but I do think Anderson doesn't bring quite as much to the page. When it comes to someone like a Dignan, I think a lot of that is through performance because Owen Wilson is so naturally charismatic, is so naturally kind of even in 
moments where he's not as big as he can be. He's so he draws you in so easily. We're talking about Wes Anderson and Wes Anderson films and PT Anderson films, but Wes Anderson is a guy who with one exception has always been a collaborator and his very first collaborator was Owen Wilson for the first three films. And I think Owen Wilson's voice is integral to bottle rocket working. Um, and I think he brings something a little, uh, a little different. And maybe that is why Dignan works when he does work for you. But I I think, uh, you know, we can't, I don't think we can pin everything that works and doesn't work just on Wes. Wes is definitely the, um, the guy who makes the films that we instantly recognize when we see a frame because he's so meticulous with his, the, the way that he crafts a, a scene and, a you know the composition is always so immaculate uh but the something that i think is interesting is looking at how his films change as he changes collaborators from film to film to film um and i i think there's there's also something to the reason these first three films feel like they're sort of of a piece is because he's working with owen again and again and again I think Owen Wilson and him have a really good collaboration. I think that once him and Owen Wilson go their separate ways, though, I think the movies only get better. Um, now, I will kind of leave out Darjeeling Limited and uh, Life Aquatics. We'll come back to those later when I re Wait, wait, wait. Them. After they go their separate ways, you mean immediately after they go their separate ways, they don't quite get better yet? They <laughs> they drive yeah, into a ravine and then come out? Well, but because Darjeeling is still a collaboration with Wilson in some ways. Uh, and then to me, Moonrise Kingdom, I, you know, and Grand Budapest Hotel, just they're so much more thoughtful, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Like, I think um, then. Obviously from this, uh, but even to me, I think something like Life Aquatic and Darjeeling Limited, they have the hollowness that when Wilson – it's it's that moment where he's still pairing with Owen Wilson, but he's not collaborating with him as much. Mm-hmm. And I think he loses his footing a little bit, whereas here, I think he creates a pretty authentic and well-rounded character in all these people, but he never – he never fully registers them in a way that he does later. Now, it's not that I, I, I do not dislike this movie, and I I probably am coming down as the naysayer and being hard on it, but I think it is that initial feature film that is strong, but it is – I watch it and I think, God, what's he going to do next? That That's my big thing. I don't have the passion for this movie, and I never get quite as excited as I do watching his – other stuff that I really, really love. And even the progression he has from this to Rushmore is insane how much more fully formed he is as a filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. And a storyteller. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we'll probably be saying the same thing about PTA when we get to Boogie Nights as well, though. Oh, that's a titanic leap as well. It is, though, kind of refreshing to see that while he did have things that were already there, fully formed ideas or styles. Um, he also wasn't just out of the gate 
without ever making a feature film before knew exactly how to do everything. Like you can see that he's learning comedically. This feels a little different than other, uh, Wes Anderson movies in the way that some of the jokes are set up. Like I think what I like about, about Anderson's comedy in general is that it's downplayed and it's like, the joke isn't like a, but I'm bump punchline it's more like my favorite joke in this entire movie and it gets me every single time is that uh just after they've left uh grace at school and they're in the car and and anthony's just in the background and i think bob's even he's saying something and but anthony just in the background goes oh that was a stop sign (laughs) and (laughs) like it gets me every time because it's a joke that's just put there for you to discover you know, it's not a in your face. Here's a joke. You should laugh. We're going to pause for a second. It's just if you catch it, it's great. If you don't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't even ruin the scene if you don't catch that it was. And, a joke. And it manages to be a joke while being completely real and not a joke at the same time. It's just a little like slice of life that that you can look at and appreciate and laugh at or not. I love that about his style, but I do think this movie has a bit of James L. Brooks in it as well as, um, you know, a, there are some more structured jokes or more, um, jokes that don't quite feel as Andersonian. And as far as like there being, I guess, honestly, not quite as weird or hidden or they're, they're almost a little too polished. Um, which I think may add a little bit to, I mean, and James L. Brooks in general definitely adds to this whole feeling of maybe it being a bit chopped up and distorted and not quite all a full cohesive idea because, I mean, I know there's large bits of this film that, um, I mean, the original screenplay was like over 200 pages. And then even when they shot it, there were like 20, 30 minutes that they, completely excised of other sort of tangential things where they really just cut it down to the bare bones. But Brooks is, is just, I think at the core of all of that, because he's sort of their mentor at this point, because these guys, they have no idea how to make a feature film. They have ambition. They're sort of dignant in their own way. James L. Brooks is kind of best film to me in terms of endearment. Have y'all, y'all haven't seen it. Have you? No, no. Terms of Endearment takes place in Texas, uh, a little bit of Oklahoma too, and it is this very kind of sprawling because it takes place over a long period of time. And it's so intricate in the way it weaves drama and comedy together. Um, to me, Terms of Endearment is absolutely incredible. And if I was somebody like a Wes Anderson watching, I would be like, oh, I could do this. I could totally do this. And that would be where the mentorship comes into me. And to me, in terms of Darren, it can bowl you over emotionally in a way that only a certain few movies really can. And I think it is really telling that Anderson latches on to somebody like a James L. Brooks. Now, obviously James L. Brooks loses his way at some point and he makes a string of kind of really weird choices in the Spanglish, in the, uh, what was that? How do you know or whatever? Which is yeah, that oh actually Owen Wilson film with um, uh, Reese Witherspoon, and that film uh, he he loses his way a little bit. Even I think as good as it gets, he loses his way. Uh, and Anderson 
Wes Anderson never has. He's stuck true to exactly the kind of art he wants to be telling. He is exactly the artist he wants to be. And he's never, I think, pulled any punches. There's never an Anderson film that you think, look at and say, well, that's the one he cast the paycheck in for. And it's really hard to be an artist and that happens. And I think he's, he's even said this in interviews. I don't think he could make a cash grab film if he tried to. And, and also like James L. Brooks, to me, when I think about him now, he's more like almost a guru than a filmmaker. You know, I think about him as much as a producer or as the guy who was there on the ground floor with the Simpsons or, you know, uh, more a guy. And when I say guru, like someone who you could like, he's the perfect person to take a new filmmaker under his wing because he has so much sage advice and so much like he understands the structure of jokes and story that doesn't necessarily make him the guy who you want to be making a film um, per se, because it doesn't translate into all the pieces coming together. But as someone who can say, okay, let's look at uh, the way this film comes together, the way, the way a joke is structured from a different perspective that maybe you haven't seen before and open that up. I think that's what he brings to, uh, to Owen and Wes here with, with the screenplay. Well, in even outside of James Brooks, you know, they visited Quentin Tarantino on yeah. the set of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, and they, and they alluded in the commentary, they're like, yeah, you know, we basically were trying to make something a little more like that. And then it, didn't really pan out because that's not really what we can do. Um, and it's interesting just to imagine Wes Anderson trying to do something like a Reservoir Dogs or a Pulp Fiction because that was obviously in the air. Yeah. And he, he started out thinking like that, but then he's like, well, that's not really what I can do. Well, and he's, he's said that multiple times he's tried to make sort of, he's thought he like, he thought the life aquatic was going to be his adventure movie. But he just he can only make the movies that he can make. And so it's interesting in the way that he sort of it's almost like taking a genre, putting it into the Wes Anderson prism and then seeing what's refracted out of it because he can't give you just the thing. It has to come out in the way that he tells it. And I think that's why his films are so identifiable as his because he can't he can't touch it and not leave fingerprints on it. This film maybe doesn't look quite as much like a traditional Anderson film. It definitely has aspects there. I just think he hadn't fully honed his craft. But And you'll see the leap from this to Rushmore. But from Rushmore out, those are very, very clearly the same director. And while there are yeah. signatures of Wes Anderson here, you probably could have showed me this without um, – telling me it was a Wes Anderson movie and I would have been like, Oh, this was probably like inspired by Wes Anderson or was he inspired by this? Or like, it doesn't necessarily a hundred percent feel like it. Not every frame looks like a Wes Anderson movie where yeah. basically every frame from Rushmore on, you can just look at any of them and say, Oh, that's Wes Anderson. To me, like bottle rocket feels like nineties independent cinema. I think you could plug and play a lot of nineties independent directors. I think bottle rocket would look and feel and breathe the same. Whereas, Rushmore onwards, I don't think you can even get close to saying that. D 
Do you think Luke Wilson's uh, Anthony is like a a proto Jason Schwartzman for uh, Wes? Do you think um, Luke Wilson would have been good in those same roles that Schwartzman played down the road, uh, or do you see those as kind of different, completely different type characters? I don't know. I you know I think that's probably not a bad kind of line to draw between the two of them. I think Luke Wilson's really good here. Um, I don't think you know. Schwartzman, I think, is really good as well. Um, obviously, there's probably what a 12, 10 to twelve year age difference between the two guys, but to me, I think they both bring a very distinct energy. It never goes above a certain, you know, register. They're very good to linger in a certain keel. It mm-hmm. never tips uh, one way or the other, and I think it's not a bad uh, line to draw. I do think Jason Schwartzman is probably a little bit better actor and he's got a little bit more charm to him than Wilson. Um, but I do think Luke Wilson is quite good here. I think it's interesting that you say Schwartzman has more charm than just from like, because I think there's something about Anthony that is sort of, uh, he's low key charming. Whereas Schwartzman is like, over the top charming. He's low key charming and people are drawn to him versus Schwartzman is almost like annoyingly so. Yes. Like he's yes. he's yes. constantly look at me, look at what I'm doing, look at like he's always I mean like he builds an aquarium because he thinks that's the way he gets his teacher to love him. Have, have like, you guys seen Shop Girl? No. This Steve Martin wrote it. Uh Jason Schwartzman basically plays a very charming, very narcissistic, very – it's like the prototypical like Jason Schwartzman is charming, but he's also kind of yeah. absolute nuisance to be around. I think you know that's what Schwartzman can do is that he's charming and you see why somebody would be drawn to him, but at the same time – Yeah, but w- what I'm saying is I, I think there are – I think there are similarities between Anthony and uh, Max, mm-hmm. but I don't think – like I think if you took the Anthony character and somehow transplanted him into Rushmore, you wouldn't get the same uh you wouldn't get the same outcome because Anthony probably wouldn't be well, for one, Anthony wouldn't be in every single club in the world. Right. He would want to be in zero clubs. And yeah. he would be he would probably be put off by the fact or totally unaware of the fact that People are constantly like, hey, Anthony, let's go hang out. Let's go do something. Let's, you know, like he would he would see that as a burden, not as whereas Max, like all he wants is friends. He's constantly doing these things to create friends. Unless that was Anthony before he got exhausted. Unless that's sort of him before he, you know, had to check himself into the into the what do they call it? Looney bin? The nut house. The nut house. The nut house. That's it. Well. (laughs) So one of the things I, I do love, and we kind of talked about, you just brought up the nut house, but the opening and how it does open, and I guess it was all reshoots, uh, yeah. this nut house scene, but when he is planning, quote unquote, the escape, and his doctor's like, Wait, what are you doing? He's like, well, my friend Dignan, I want him to feel like I'm basically escaping. And it is this weird moment where you're like, wait. What is this like? What is this world we just entered? And I think yeah. that is a moment that is very clearly much more in the Wes Anderson that would come like three years later with Rushmore, and then obviously Rural Tenenbaums is much more that whimsical touch. Sure, but 
for me, I think even as good as that moment is, it's very strange then to basically enter back into the world of Bottle Rocket, which is a little more grounded in not quite reality, but not too far away from it. And I think it's interesting to see what these characters do in that world. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, I think Bottle Rocket, where it, that love story, which comes in that kind of, what, right in the middle third of the movie, I guess you'd say. Yeah. You know, I think that's a pretty touching love story. And I think it may be the most romantic that made besides Moonrise Kingdom these ever really been. And I think it's interesting to see what that kind of love story does in a Wes Anderson movie. Um, Cause we never really get it much after uh, it's probably the sweetest his movies ever are. And to me though, even as kind of sweet and as endearing as that love story is, it never hits the emotional kind of core that something like Rushmore does a couple of years later. I, I don't know if I agree with that. There's there's a lot of other love stories sprinkled throughout some other sweet moments and things, and we'll get to those at at some point. But what I what I see from the romantic part in the middle of this movie is Luke Wilson playing an Antoine Duenel type character. Uh, yeah, I, I see that strong, yeah, strong definitely. influence of him. Just the way he decides to follow Inez around, help her make the rooms, all that. It 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 feels like a a missing segment from from the Adventures of Antoine Donnell. Part of it, though, is also it feels like they sort of were like, well, we've got to have a love story element to it because we're like we're they making thought, a movie. They well, not <laughs> only we're making a movie, but they thought they were making a commercial movie. Mm-hmm. So they that's a commercial element that you just have to have. And ultimately, it's a film that got like a 22 cinema score or something uh, when they when they previewed it, like which is just blows my mind because people freak out when it's like, oh, something got an 80. Like it got a 22. No one knew what they were in for. Yeah. And that's the thing, though, cinema score is that it's always what you think it's you're a, getting. Yeah. It's expectation. Yeah. And you can't like, especially for a first Wes Anderson film, you can't set expectation. It's impossible. Yeah. And you hear something called Bottle Rocket and, you know, it's kind of loosely a crime film. You can't, you probably do go with that expectation that it is going to be a little more rah, rah, rip roaring than it actually is. Uh, but I think what's so interesting about that kind of progression of the love story is that it's all about, uh, movement and space and time and how they interact with each other because they can't communicate. They can't Mm -hmm. actually talk to each other. So it is just the way they interact with each other on a human and physical level. And I think... That is what Luke Wilson does so well, and I don't have the name of the actress name Inez, but I think she does really well too. That communicates so much through physical body language, and it's I think a really touching moment. And I obviously I said is one of his most romantic subplots, but obviously he has uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom. Like he's got love stories in there as well, but this is until probably Moonrise Kingdom, where his love story is the most kind of at the core. I, I like you mentioned a movie called Bottle Rocket. That that I still don't, the name doesn't work for me still. This is more of like a sprinkler, I mean a sparkler at best. 
This this is like it it is it is watching a sparkler for 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 ninety four minutes or whatever it is, and it's great, and I, I love it. But Bottle Rocket sounds like you're gonna have this amazing like 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 explosion at the end, and you don't. I love the ending. I love how it goes, but but I wouldn't describe it as Bottle Rocket. To me, the the reason he calls it Bottle Rocket is because just like when Dignan is in the car and they're shooting him out the side of the car. You can hold a bottle rocket and you can control it, which is what Dignan is all about. It's all about control. And you can control that kind of firework more than something like a, I don't know, a nuclear atomic whatever. I don't know much about fireworks, but. Um, <laughs> you're, you're out of your element here, Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what snakes are going to do. Guys, we're talking about a Wes Anderson film, his first film. I think we would be remiss if we didn't spend just a brief moment of time on the soundtrack, um, because that is something that has become a integral piece of uh, of his films. I really, really love this soundtrack, and um, I don't think it quite sticks out as much as his later stuff. Particularly, I mean, like Rushmore forward, it's basically they're all albums that you want to buy, but there's a lot of stuff like the couple of love, the couple of songs by the band love on here. Uh, what is it? Zorro's back. There's a lot of great stuff and the Mark mother's boss stuff. We should probably mention him as well because he becomes a frequent collaborator and is collaborating again on this French dispatch that's coming out. What next year? And and this is a, this is a, for the first Rolling Stone. I mean, Rolling Stones are in this movie too, right? This, yep. At the very is, end. Yeah. Which is which is going to come back up in a couple other movies as well. I think most of them, almost all of them, not not Darjeeling and not Moonrise, but well, no, Darjeeling's no, no, it got isn't stones. Darjeeling. Darjeeling definitely has uh, stones. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, play with me, you you play with fire. Yeah, uh, and that that to me is my favorite use of a stone song in any of his movies. Even though I'm not crazy about that movie, but Street one Fighting thing that Man I, in in Fantastic Mr. Fox, man. That's good too. But what I love about the needle, so there are a lot of needle drops in this. And I think so interestingly, when you're in a needle drop moment and you feel like you're watching something that is uh, non diegetic, and then mm-hmm. Inez mm-hmm. hits the recorder and you're like, yep. Oh shit. There's a couple of those moments and they work mm-hmm. marvelously. In that, that moment where Inez does it and you're like, whoa, like it really throws you for a loop and you're like, okay. This guy wants to play with sound in a way that not a lot of people do. That moment is so stunning to me because it shows a control of space and time and sound in a way that a lot of people don't even think about. Well, it's also interesting because he's he's used that radio diegetically before, but it was more what you would expect to be coming out of Inez's uh, radio. And we've already heard one of the songs from love. This is, I think the second one. And so for no reason at all, would we expect that this is what she's listening to, but then it just, and you know, it's a, it's sort of a medium shot. So it's not up on the, the radio. You just kind of see your hand come up and she clicks it off. And it's just, it's such a great moment of just sort of like that low key hits you with like, okay, this is, this is how I'm playing. And I think that kind of plays into what you were talking about earlier, Peterson, with the, the Russian nesting doll effect of how he moves the script along. Like it's that his understanding of not just 
how to write a story, but how the story is actually fully going to come together whenever he has the final product. That is, that is what's so interesting for me with him being a first time director and having never done this before his instinct to do some of these things. When he drops needles, it, it fully brings you into the screen. And there's obviously there's needle drops in movies where you're like, I don't know. That's not really the right song. That doesn't really feel right. Anderson understands so well what it means to have a song kind of take over a movie. Yeah. And that's what he does. He lets the song take over the movie. And then two, so the, re- the Russian nesting doll, I just want to get back to it because I wasn't quite talking about the editing. I was talking about, well, a little bit of the editing, but the actual style in which he like Russian nesting dolls shots together. So that moment when Richie's in the car it is shooting directly at him. Uh-huh. And then when it when the camera cuts, it basically backs the camera up 15 feet. Him and uh, Digner are now talking outside of the car. Yeah. And it's the exact placement. So okay. it now backs you up and you see the composition. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I and thought I thought you and were it's talking that hard about, cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I totally I thought you were talking about the way that he takes like the conversation doesn't skip a beat, but we've clearly gone forward in time. And he does that a few times throughout this movie where yeah. people will be having conversation. We clearly skip, you know, five, 20, 30 minutes forward, whatever it is in time. And it's the same conversation picking up exactly where it left off. Well, that, and this is almost like space and time pick up exactly where he left off, yeah. which is what he also kind of gets to a little bit later in his career as well. And I think, there are those flashes, there are those needle drop moments where you're like, this is the Wes Anderson that is going to really take full form in the next movie. And why I don't quite love this movie, I do love some moments of it, and they do really hit you with a punch. Um, and I think, you know, we've barely talked about the heist at the end of the film and uh, how, how insane it is when – in. James Conn just kind of shows up. You're like, wait, James Conn's in this movie? Yeah. This is a real like, movie? This isn't friends like, with a, with a, a, a camera? Well, and he's he, – like James Conn, he's – his outfits all look so strange. They fit him in these weird ways. Like he doesn't quite really he has the, seem the to little match his world. In, at the party? He's got the – yeah, that weird ponytail. And I think I told you guys on our little Slack was uh, – it's it's interesting he's drinking Perrier Jouet's Belle Epoque, obviously an expensive champagne. And then when I was watching Inglorious Bastards, also that makes an appearance there, which is kind of – I wonder if Tarantino is making an homage to Wes Anderson. Would not surprise me. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting uh, seeing how energetic and how exciting and how full of life that – um, how full of life that uh, heist film is at the very end because it really does. It explodes onto the screen to me. That's when I'm like, all right, this is the kind of energy he's going to show in his next film. I have a question for you guys. And actually, this is something that I want to incorporate moving forward uh, because you know, it dawned on me while editing the episode for Heart Eight. Jake doesn't think that uh, PTA has a sense of humor. 
And I most certainly think he does. Uh, Peterson, I think you would agree with me there. And so I think we should introduce for the Magnificent Andersons a funniest moment segment where, you know, as we round out the review, we talk about what uh, what gave us the most chuckles, because, Jake, you're going to you're going to have to be looking for him now. No matter what. I, I, I disagree with this premise, but I'll rant about it more on a P.T. Anderson episode. Great. I'm all game for this one, though. I fully co-sign. Okay, well, Jake, you, you start off. What are you, what are you going <sighs> with? This is a tough one because there's so many great moments, but the one that sticks out in my head, and, and it's maybe just because I, I love visual humor, I love uh, sight gags, but I, I love Owen Wilson riding around on the mini bike. Doing little circles <laughs> yeah. on it. It takes him so long to even come up to the camera. He's genuinely having fun. Dignan's having fun. That yeah. that's my banana? favorite funniest moment of this. I laugh every time I see that. He's just just cutting circles on a little bitty mini bike. Don't know how he got it. Don't know why he got it. Just that's what he's riding around in his little yellow jumpsuit. The thing that kills me in that scene is when they have him and Anthony have their talk, and then he go he gets ready to leave, and the bike won't start. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he can't get the bike to start. Well, I also love that Dignan's worldview is just like Anthony could fit on the back of that bike with him. <laughs> like, like he is he he thinks things can happen that can't happen, and that's just so so key to him. It's a great scene. It's an it's a it's an awesome scene, but it's also really funny. And uh, and I'm going with that for my pick. And if you ask me again in about three hours, I'll probably have another one as I as I think more on the movie. I go around, but that's the thing that kind of sticks out image wise to me as being funny. What about you, Peterson? So I am right between two moments, and they're both from the heist. Um, I love the moment where he, Owen Wilson walks in and sees Kumar Palani, who is just sitting there basically in front of the safe, and he's like, <laughs> he's like come on, what are you doing? Um, and then I, the moment I think probably my the one that would actually be my number one would be when the fire alarm goes off and and Owen Wilson's like, what? why is the fire alarm going off? And it's and it's it's the moment where you're like, these guys are so stupid. And it's right before uh, they shoot, uh, right before what's his name gets shot. What's his name in the movie? Um, Applejack. Applejack. Right before <laughs> Applejack gets shot. <laughs> it's it's so ridiculous because. It's just like, oh my god, these guys have no clue what they're doing. They're absolutely out of their depth, and that that probably is the moment that kills me the most. For me, I mean, honestly, my my favorite moment is probably the stop sign, as small and low key as it is. Uh, but a very close second is probably the offhand line when, after Dignan blows up at the like planning for the uh, for the bookstore heist. And Anthony tries to cool him off and they go in the kitchen and Bob's just sitting there looking at the gun. And then you just hear, <laughs> you just hear Dignan go, how does an asshole like Bob get such a nice kitchen? <laughs> and then it's like a beat. And then Anthony kind of convinces him to come back out. And it's just, it's another one of those where it's like, it's a line that's, you know, kind of muffled and kind of. You know, it's played for exactly the right amount of humor that uh, that Wes Anderson delivers. You know, he's never he's never going to deliver something like Will Ferrell with a giant boner standing next to Christina Applegate in the middle of a 70s news studio. 
Um, you know, you're never going to get that uproarious laughter. That's very specific. But that's that's the type of thing where you're not expecting it and the entire crowd is going to like lose it seeing it the first time. But on repeat viewing, that's the type of thing that you know that the gag is coming. And so it's like, whereas I think the thing, the longevity that his jokes have for me is that they're like they just kind of sneak in there. And that's one of those jokes that just sneaks in there. And like, sometimes when I'm watching, I'll forget that it's coming. And then I get a belly laugh because how does an asshole like Bob get such a nice kitchen? Oh yeah. He has parents who are jet setting. They're in Singapore right now. Well, I think what's important about watching this movie and understanding a little bit is that, you know, even Wes Anderson, the commentary said, uh, you know, people weren't laughing when it debuted. Yes. But now, when you see the new Beverly, people are like genuinely laughing and genuinely ready for moments of humor yeah. in a way that they weren't at the beginning. And I've always wondered, and Chris, you've probably seen it the most of all, all three of us. Mm-hmm. Why Why is his brother called Future Man? <laughs> uh, they, they explain that in one of the numerous. There's a lot of deleted scenes on this Criterion disc. Um, because they shot a lot of stuff that I, I was even reading today that, uh, oh, what's her name? Is it Leslie Greer? Oh, what's Judd Apatow's wife's name? Um, Leslie Mann? Leslie Mann. She was, she, I think, was the sorority sister um, that's that's mentioned. <laughs> really? She was in a scene. I didn't know she had a sister. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> boy. Um, but because they thought that, and I don't know if it was specifically Andrew Wilson, like I would imagine they probably knew that they were going to cast him just given that you got two other Wilson brothers. Sure. But the idea being that future man looks like he is some sort of like uh soldier made by a government just to go into desert warfare, I think is... He, he looks like he'd be 1990s casting of Captain America. Well, like, I, I think their idea was more like sort of like a a knockoff Dolph Lundgren. So like a knockoff <laughs> of a knockoff of a, uh, of, of a, you know, B-movie superhero sort of guy or like macho hero sort of guy. Uh, so, you know, like three rungs below Stallone and Schwarzenegger, basically. It did not click for me that he was a Wilson. Yeah. No. Huh. What's, what's weird about all three of the Wilsons is that I think Luke and Owen look enough alike that you can tell they're siblings, but you can also cast them as not siblings. Mm-hmm. And then I think Andrew Wilson, he has, they all have the same kind of cadence in their dialogue. Yes. Um, yes. And that's where you really catch it. I think Luke and Owen look more like than Andrew does the two of them. Uh, and especially now, I think Andrew looks like, completely different than the two of them. Yeah. Whereas back then, yeah, it was Andrew, sorry, Luke and Owen look pretty similar. Moving along to the Anderson anthology guys. Uh, this time I'm, I, I think I'm more curious for this one than I was for the last one, because it, it feels like we've had enough kind of push and pull in conversation here that I don't know where you guys are totally landing on this one. So let's refresh everyone's memory. We've got, Three categories, three buckets we can put this in. Anderson A-List, which is cream of the crop, must-see Wes Anderson film. Deep Dive, middle of the pile. If you're a fan, you should probably definitely see it. Uh, but no one's going to hold it against you if you don't. 
And at the bottom for Paul, we've got purely for Paul's Papa. But for Wes, we've got Wes's Weakest Whimsies. These are the films that are just a little too twee. And um, perhaps it feels like Wes Anderson doing a parody of Wes Anderson or uh, something something like that. So uh, those are categories. Guys, what do you... Jake, let's start with you. What, where did, where would you put this one? Well, I, I definitely like the movie, and I definitely love all the promise that it shows. And I almost always think that a director's debut, uh, especially if you're a big fan of that director, uh, should almost be bumped up uh, a category just for that. It's something you have to see to understand them. This is still a deep dive. Yeah, I'm giving it a deep dive. Like it, I can't, I can't list it as an Anderson A list. There's, there's too many amazing films and i don't think this is a must see i'm i i like it i think you should see it if you like wes anderson you should watch it but i'm not gonna grab some random guy at work and be like go home and watch bottle rocket it's just not quite there well it also it would be a terrible entry point for someone who is unaware of his uh like or even someone who had just seen like maybe someone who just saw darjeeling limited Mm -hmm. it would be a weird (laughs) thing if like in conversation you're like oh you should go back and watch his first movie because then they're just going to come back the next day and be like, what, what was that? Like, yeah, especially if, if they had only me. seen the masterpiece that was Darjeeling limited that I say unironically longtime listeners will know. I have a deep, deep love for that movie. Peterson. Uh, for me, I don't know. I'm, I'm very close to a deep dive. Uh, it probably doesn't get there for me though. Uh, I think there's, enough kind of faults right in the middle. And I think that it does like, if you weren't to ever see this movie and you just started with Rushmore, I think you'd probably be better for it. Um, if you exhausted the entire Wes Anderson filmography and you came back and you were like, you know what, let's watch that first film. Maybe, uh, you get more out of it. But for me, I think this is, uh, Wes's weakest whimsies. Uh, it is, <laughs> Boy, that's um, I, I, I. There's a lot I like about this movie, but at the same point, there is plenty that I think is wanting, and I think there's a lot that doesn't quite hold up for me. I think there's a lot to digest here, but at the end, I don't think there's a lot of nutrition here. So, um, I think this movie's okay, but I don't quite love it as much as some of his other stuff. Well, we respect all opinions, even wrong ones. I I would so. just like to point out that, Peterson, <laughs> you have just set a fire in Jake's ass, and he's going to just find every reason <laughs> to pick apart every Paul Thomas Anderson film that we discuss well, the, from here on out. Like The difference there is that Paul Thomas Anderson films are perfectly crafted. There's no uh, meat on them. They're exactly the lean, There's, tight pictures. I feel like I was right? doing a right? heist and you just robbed my house. That's how I feel right now. You just cleaned my he- my house out while I was on a heist. This yeah, is- like I, I think Jake and I were a little too nice with John Carpenter. If that's uh, if these are the way, this Good. is the way that we're gonna. Well, Whoa, yeah, I mean, right. look, there's some Carpenter films I've seen on there that you guys were. Very, I actually, very I, I stand, I stand beside Ghosts of Mars. That's a, uh, that's, that's a underrated film. You're wrong as well. Everybody can be wrong about things. I've, I never have been, but everybody else can be wrong about things. It's fine. So, <laughs> I was leaning deep dive. I kind of like. There's part of me that feels like I need to 
balance this out and go a- <laughs> Anderson A-list. Go, go your heart, Chris. Go your um, heart. Do, do whatever's right. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I'm, I think I'm a deep dive on this. It is a, while it is a movie that I, I think of the three of us, I probably am the one that loves it and adores it the most. Um, it's the type of movie that I can put on to watch 10 minutes of, and then get sucked into and end up watching the entire thing just because it has this element of sort of pulling me in. It feels like a nice warm blanket, um, in, in a lot of ways. And, and it doesn't like it doesn't look and feel like Wes Anderson later, but um, there are so many of those little things that it's so interesting that to find out that he knew exactly what he was doing before he knew, like his instinct was there Um, before he knew how to be a filmmaker. He had the instincts to um, start exploring some of these things. And so uh, for that alone, I think it's worth checking out if you have, you know, if you've, seen some of his more popular films more like it's it's definitely worth going back and catching up with and kind of seeing where he came from and seeing also like the the giant leap that he made going forward i think that's 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 where it's got to be slated it's it's hard for me to see see you putting it higher or lower i am i am so close to a deep dive though it's like it, it just edges into that, like just slips. Um, Peterson, you want to go less, ahead and tell us where you ranked Arjelian Limited then? Good. Um, I am going to withhold judgment. It's been <laughs> that's it'll be, the what, right 12, it'll be 12 years in October since I last seen it. Um, I will say I listen to that soundtrack quite a lot. Um, I do love that soundtrack, I love the Kink song. I love songs. Um, There's three of them on there. We'll put a pin in it and we'll get, we'll there. get there. Yeah. I, I don't want to quite ruin Jake's, uh, Jake's opinion yet um, of how this miniseries is going to go, but we'll get there. Chris, I know you've probably picked a delicious pint to go with this. Where, where are we going to, where are we going to be drinking? Is this, is this beer going to be out of a can? This beer is out of a can. Um, I, oh, I thought it was going to be a bottle rocket. Can we shotgun it? Oh. It does. It it does not come in bottles. It only comes in draft and cans. Oh, uh, well, go I, ahead. I anyway. apologize. <laughs> um, I mean, you you can put a bottle rocket in a can and launch it from the can. Yeah, um, they're called can rockets, right? That, yeah, in some uh, in some places, the knockoffs are called can can rockets. <laughs> um, but after Peterson's brutal takedown, I might need me like three or four of these beers. That was a uh, very soft, very soft. Still, still, it hurt. Not recommend. It. I mean, it. It wasn't. It wasn't a screwdriver to the face, but it hurt. James Conn would have had something to say to you. That's all yeah. I have to say. Uh, no, I'm. I'm going to pair Bottle Rocket with a beer called Mostly Harmless because I think it kind of fits the ethos of both the movie in general and uh, Dignan as well. I mean, even when he's robbing people, he's. <laughs> thanking them and just i mean kind of, gets shot though he doesn't actually get shot though he has a heart attack i'm pretty sure i didn't shoot him <laughs> he didn't i think shoot that's him. what he says <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is this beer is mostly harmless from eureka heights brewing company in houston texas uh this is comes in at a very sessionable point 4.5 abv hence why i said i'm probably going to need like three or four of them 
and a uh, solid 42 IBU. But honestly, it's a uh, it it doesn't feel like it's that high. It's it's quite refreshing. Uh, Untapped classifies this as an American pale ale, uh, but the brewery itself calls it a Citra Pale Kolsch, and hmm. it's uh, which I guess perhaps is just not a it it does it does kind of lie in this weird place where it drinks like a Kolsch that has some juicy uh, notes to it and a little more hop on top of it. Uh, but it's very, as the, uh, the untapped guys would say crushable. Um, it's a kind of the perfect summer beer, although, uh, canning wise, I think it's only available in cans in springtime and then draft, uh, whenever. Do you know Um, what kind of hops they're using? Um, they're using Citra and then one or two other varieties. Citra is like the main one that's giving it that, that juicy, that real juicy. And then they're using, uh, Vienna malt. So because it's kind of a German style, they're using a, um, a European malt as sort of the backbone and then a couple other malts in, in there as well. Uh, really, I mean, it's a fantastic sort of, uh, summer backyard sitting on the porch or by the pool beer. Um, also if you're doing some lawn wrangling, uh, it'll really serve you well. And I mean, it's just also if you, you gotta go do some low level burgling, um, you could put a couple of these in your back pocket and drink them along the way or celebrate. You could celebrate with a whole mostly harmless six pack after your successful burgle. You could drop it in a fanny pack like really Lita wears. <laughs> you could drop it in a fanny pack. Uh, but yeah, that's mostly harmless from Eureka Heights Brewing Company. Check it out. Bottle Rocket is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. Or you can pick it up on a beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email is your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations. Coming up next. I never cut nothing 
All right, guys, into the show once again. But before we go, time for really rad recommendations. Jake, I think you're up first today. What do you got? Uh, so this is a movie I assume we've all seen because we all went to high school in the early 2000s. But it's a movie that I, I strongly do not think could have existed without Bottle Rocket. It it feels to me like a tape of Bottle Rocket ended up in Idaho or wherever this movie is set eight years later, and they thought it was new and cool. So Jared Hess went out and made Napoleon Dynamite starring John Hedder. Do you guys have opinions on this movie? Do you Did you guys enjoy this in high school? Was this part of your like formative uh, film experience at that time? I saw a sneak peek of this movie before it came <laughs> out, before, before it had the wedding footage in the end. Um, and I was a big fan then, and I'm a big fan now, despite the fact that you know, there was a there was a large chunk of time in the middle where it was just sort of a toxic like mm-hmm. catchphrases were mm-hmm. uh you couldn't say them because they've they'd been exhausted and there was it had the basically the marketing had almost ruined the film mm-hmm. for the film's sake. Uh because it caught on everywhere. Yeah. But uh I I think it holds up pretty well. I actually watched most of it. Probably a month ago. Pete Peterson? I was super excited to see it. My friend Lindley and I, before the movie came out, were like quoting the movie to each other. And on my birthday, uh, Lindley was like, hey, let's go see Napoleon Dynamite. So we drove around. And this is before Waze or like a cell phone that could show you like where things were. And Napoleon Dynamite didn't play at a lot of theaters. So we were like trying to find where it was. And we ended up having to go from like a seven o'clock to like a nine thirty, mm-hmm. and it was this crazy massive uh, ordeal trying to find it. And we watched it. I think I kind of kind of enjoyed it then, and then it soured pretty quick for me because mm-hmm. I was like, I do feel like at that point they were making fun of the character of Napoleon Dynamite. I don't think they were ever really. I don't think he was ever in on the joke. I think they were really trying to make fun of him. You think the movie was trying to make fun of Napoleon or people were trying to make fun of Napoleon outside of the movie? Probably a little bit of both. Um, And I don't – and I haven't seen it, you know, in 15 years since it came out. But I think it did sour so quickly for me. Uh, But I do have a fond memory of like trying to go find it with my friend Lindley. Like we were like, oh, where is this movie? Now – just context of the day. So my birthday was yesterday. Uh, so literally it's like 15 years to almost the day that wow. I saw Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> um, so uh, I, yeah, I mean, I have like fond memories of trying to see it, but I don't know if I have fond memories of the movie. Look, I, I can, I couldn't disagree with you more. I, I love the treatment of the character Napoleon Dynamite. I think it is a, fully genuine depiction. I think it is, uh, has as much heart as any other movie. And I feel that it is, is, is like a, a spiritual, uh, sibling to bottle rocket. It has the same sort of, uh, just general genuine characters who really, uh, they're uh, much more downtrodden than our characters in bottle rocket, but they, they strive for things. They want to accomplish these things. And it doesn't 
have that cynicism, even if there is a lot more pressing down on these characters, a lot more kind of abuse being heaped on them. It has that same sort of spirit inside of it. And I think it's sort of a great companion to look at, at something that comes from that lineage of bottle rocket and carries a lot of the, or carries that same sort of torch that I see bottle rocket. So what I'll say is I think, uh, John heater or header, as you said, I I don't know how actually his name, but John heater, I think he brings that. I don't think Jared Hess does. Oh, I disagree. I yeah, I disagree. But this is this is a discussion for another time, perhaps. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe we should do a revisit of of. Uh, Everybody's been knocking Napoleon down our doors Dynamite. to re-review Napoleon Dynamite. Yep. We're going to be brave enough to do it. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you if you want to watch this again, if you want to go back and revisit it, it's streaming uh, pretty much anywhere you you uh, typically stream things from. So. Prime Video, YouTube, Voodoo, things like that. Um, but uh, so revisit it, Napoleon Dynamite, and and definitely reach out and let us know what you think. And if you want to hear us uh, review that uh, on the show, <laughs> <laughs> Peterson, what do you have? Yeah, so I've, I just said yesterday was my birthday, which is true because uh, that with two children it doesn't happen a lot. I stayed away and saw the new film by Lulu Wang, which is The Farewell. Uh, it was probably an odd movie to go see by yourself on your birthday, but, um, <laughs> it is a film and I don't know how familiar you guys are with the premise, but it's about Aquafina who plays a young woman in New York and her grandmother in China gets diagnosed with stage four cancer. And essentially what happens is that they do not tell the grandmother, they do not tell her that she has cancer and this is, I guess, a very common practice in China, which to me, probably you'd go to jail in America if you did this, but they don't tell her. And they have this wedding, which is for uh, Aquafina's cousin. And he is basically three months into his relationship with his girlfriend. And it is essentially a way for everyone to gather around and say sort of a last goodbye, except they can't really say goodbye because – the grandmother has no idea that she's actually dying. So it is this really powerful movie about what it means to have been from a place and then also to be essentially a foreigner from that place. Aquafina's character is born in China and then moves to America. And then she essentially is this foreign person in both lands, essentially, because she doesn't feel comfortable in either location. And her, and it's really about what it means to be associated with a familial unit and how your tie to a place isn't necessarily because of the actual place, but how you're tied to the people and experiences you had while you were there. Uh, which obviously, you know, I'm from Atlanta, but am I tied to Atlanta? No, I'm tied to my family and my family unit from here. Most likely is that's the biggest tie for me. Uh, and Aquafina is just absolutely incredible. Uh, Lulu Wang's direction is outstanding. Uh, her writing is really sensitive, really spot on in a lot of the t- moments. And I think it is the kind of movie that will catch on. I think it's going to have a pretty good audience going forward and i really encourage people because it is going to be a smaller movie uh i do encourage people please go see it support it it is 
a really interesting film and has a lot to say. And I do think people are going to get a lot out of it. So that's The Farewell. Uh, it's by Lulu Wang. It's going to be in theaters everywhere right now. Uh, even though it's a smaller film, I do think it is having a pretty wide release currently. So there's The Farewell. All right, Chris, what about you? Um, I've got a book this time, actually. Uh, as longtime regular listeners know, I've been on quite a Kurt Vonnegut kick for a while now and uh, just accidentally started reading all of his books uh, more or less from the beginning chronologically. Uh, and now I'm up into the 80s and I just finished a book called Dead Eye Dick uh, from, I think, like 82 and I've been thinking about it a lot. And then I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it kind of like for somehow those two melded in my mind a little bit. So did I dick? It's about this pharmacist in Ohio in this fictional town that actually, if you've read Breakfast of Champions, takes place in the same town. There are some incidents from that book and characters from that book that cross over here. Um and it's about this this guy who, as a kid, um, he grew up with a father who, uh, before World War II, was a Nazi sympathizer, but like didn't see anything wrong with it. Had this very weird, bizarre upbringing, um, and and like many Kurt Vonnegut stories, like the description of things isn't really the plot or the story of it. But uh, the main thing is with with this character is he is sort of defined by. Um, this, this incident when he was 12 and he accidentally murdered a pregnant woman. And so he basically spends the rest of his life being defined as this guy who was dubbed dead eyed Dick by like a, um, a, a sheriff or a police officer, or someone of the sort in the community. And there's this passage in the book that I've been thinking about a lot since, uh, well, since reading it and then since seeing, once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, it, and it goes like this. If a person survives an ordinary span of life, 60 years or more, there's every chance that his or her life as a shapely story has ended. And all that remains to be experienced is epilogue. Life is not over, but the story is. And that kind of perfectly describes where Rick Dalton is in once upon a time in Hollywood. And so, uh, having them just finish the book and then right after just finishing the, the book, seeing the movie, like they've kind of melded in my mind. And I, I really like, I can't stop thinking about once upon a time in Hollywood. I would recommend it by, but I assume everyone listening to this has seen it. If you haven't, you should go see it. It's wonderful. Uh, but also pick up a book some sometime you heathen. Um, you should read anything by Vonnegut really. And, uh, I just finished it. I Dick. And it's pretty good. And so I'm going to recommend it. Check it out. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the work of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing PTA's breakout hit, Boogie Nights. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. 
Or you can say hello to us on Twitter. I'm at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm at PetersonWHill. If you enjoy War Sharks at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Bo Jennings and the Tigers for the featured music on this week's show. Find tour dates and info about their new album, The Thunderbird, at BoJennings.com. Thanks for listening, folks. How does an asshole like Bob get such a great kitchen? Pointless act! You don't give a $500 tip to a housekeeper. That's inappropriate. That's inexcusable. That I don't forgive. (laughs) 